here's what we're doing. We're doing the doctrine of sin now, and uh, we're talking about the meaning of sin, the source of sin, the scope of sin, the solution to sin. Now, we know the solution to sin. We want to get there as quickly as possible, but the solution to sin has really no meaning to us until we go through this flow, this biblical flow, the meaning of sin, what is it, the source of sin, where does it come from, the scope of sin, how far does it extend? So we're going to talk tonight about the meaning of sin. And I'm indebted to Joel Beakey. Joel Beakey is the president of Puritan Reform Seminary in Grand Rapids, Michigan. He's also a longtime pastor of a church in Grand Rapids and uh, quite a linguist, Hebrew, Greek, Aramaic, Akkadian scholar, other biblical and extra-biblical languages. So Beakey has done this rather extensive study of the words that are used for sin in the Bible. And so in order for us to understand what sin is, we need to listen to and learn from these words. The first occurrence of the word for sin in the Bible is Genesis chapter 4, verse 7. Those of us who are going through the gospel project again are... We're at a place in time where there is a concurrence between what we're studying on Sunday morning and what we're doing on Sunday night. So Genesis chapter 4, beginning in verse 1, Adam knew Eve his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions, and the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering he had no regard, so Cain was very angry and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, Why are you so angry? Why has your face fallen? If you do well, the word well here is used in the sense of, uh, in the Hebrew language of what is pleasing to God, what is acceptable to God, that is what is well for all of us. If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, if you do not do that which is pleasing and acceptable to God, sin is crouching at the door. The image here is the image of a wild animal. Sin wants to attack you and destroy you. That is the nature and character of sin, and we see this in the very opening of the Bible. Sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. You must take charge You must engage the battle with sin and temptation. You must fight and fight hard and fight well. The Hebrew word here is kata. It appears 600 plus times 
It's the basic word for sin in the Bible, Old Testament and New Testament, and it means to miss the mark. Now, when do you and I start missing the mark? From the moment of birth. Because when we're born, we are born focused inward, not upward. We are born with a focus on ourselves and what are our basic desires. This is the basic word for sin in the, in, in the whole Bible. It means that every human that is born has been born missing the mark. Every human that is born is born in sin. It's the word that is used in our memory verse for this month, our FBC life verse. Is there anyone in here who's not memorized the verse for this month? I mean, this is pre-K. All have what? Oh, thank you. <laughs> you just, all have sinned. Who has sinned? All. All includes everybody. All have sinned and fall short. Fall short means we miss the mark. We do not reach the glory of God from birth and by nature. Go to the Gospel of John. The Gospel of John, chapter 1. You know this verse because... It's so familiar to us, John chapter 1, verse 29. The next day, he, that is John the Baptist, saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. Now have your eyes on the Bible here because this is very important. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the what? Now, if, if you're reading a good translation, there is no plural there. This is not take away the sins of the world. This is, take away, this is singular. Because the sin of all the world, wherever you live in the world, is the same. And what is the sin of every human being in the world from birth? We've missed the mark. And what that sin produces in us is unbelief. The sin of the world is unbelief. We do not turn naturally to God. And we live in a world that is infiltrated by sin. We, we teach people from an early age to believe in ourselves, to embrace ourselves, to love ourselves. This is natural. This is endemic to sinful human beings. We should not Believe in ourselves because there's nothing there to believe in. We should believe in God. We should turn to God. But that requires a supernatural work of God 
in order for us to begin to turn to God in repentance and to trust Him alone to save us. So the basic word for sin in the Bible is this Hebrew word, kata. We'll get to the New Testament equivalent of it in just a few moments. This is the essence of all human sin. It's who we are. Now turn to Psalm 51. We were there last week, but let's turn to Psalm 51. This is David's prayer when confronted by Nathan the prophet. This word, this this psalm, this prayer of David is loaded up with words for sin, multiple words here that are used for sin. Verse 1, Psalm 51, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. Mercy is God not treating us as he should treat us if, in fact, he is just. Mercy is a plea for God not to give us what we deserve. David begins his prayer by pleading for mercy. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Now, the word transgressions here is a word for sin that has to do with our violation of God's standard. It points to what we do or what we don't do. But then he uses another word, a different word. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. Cleanse me, read it backwards. Cleanse me, wash me, blot out. Cleanse me from my sin. I'm a sinner from birth by nature. I need cleansing. I need the washing that only God can bring that creates in me a new nature, that makes me a new person. And then I need you to wash me, wash me from my iniquity, and blot out, remove my transgression. For I know my transgressions, plural, and my sin, singular. There are multiple transgressions because there is a sinner who sins. I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Against you, and you only, have I sinned. This is where all true confession of sin begins. It's not our sin against each other that is the ultimate problem. The ultimate problem is our sin against a holy God. Sin is the highest form of treason that you will ever be involved in because it is against the greatest person in the world. All sin is high treason against a holy God, against you. David knows. David knows Bathsheba's involved, Uriah's involved, 
he's not unconcerned about them. But ultimately, his infinite concern, his ultimate concern is with his relationship with God. I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before you against you, and you only have I sinned and done what was evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. If you and I... If you and I knew just how holy and just and perfect God was, and we knew how thoroughly sinful we were, we would never ask this question again. Why would God send anybody to hell? We would never ask that question again. Because we would understand the justice and righteousness of God, we would ask a different question entirely. It's the one that ought to be asked. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what was evil in your sight so that you may justify it in your words and blameless in your judgment. And then two beholds, verse 5, verse 6, begin with the word behold. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. I am evil from conception. I am a sinner from conception. But you delight in truth in the inward being and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Do you see the, just the tremendous distance between these two? Conceived in iniquity. That's every human. And yet what God desires is truth in our inner being. How many of us have children who've lied? Who taught them to lie? Did you? No, it's, it's the heart of sin. We want to secure ourselves, protect ourselves. That's the nature of sin, and it's against God. Look at, um, look at 2 Kings chapter 1, verse 1. We've talked about sin, the essence of sin. Now we're talking about transgressions used 130 times. In the Old Testament, the essence of the word transgression is defiance of authority. Defiance of authority. Second Kings, I could take you to numerous places. I'm just trying to lift up a few in each of these instances so we can see it in Scripture. Second Kings chapter 1, verse 1. After the death of Ahab, Moab rebelled. That's the word, the Hebrew word for transgression. Moab rebelled against Israel. Now, the most uh, potent picture of this natural rebellion in every human being is found in Romans chapter 1. Remember, the word for transgression is a word that has to do with rebellion against someone who is over us. It has to do with defiance of authority. So Romans 1, verse 18. I think Romans 1, verses 18 through 32 is among the most important portions of Scripture for our day and the time in which we live that God ever gave us. 
So verse 18, Romans 1, the wrath of God is revealed against, from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. We don't want to hear the truth. We don't want to know the truth. We surely don't want to live by the truth. The natural heart is a rebellious heart. We defy authority. So when we're taught, be your own man or woman. Do your own thing. Go your own way. Do it your way. Everything in the sinner's heart receives that and rejoices. Because it is the devil and demons of hell teaching through human beings, other human beings, exactly what he wants us to teach. Be your own authority. For what can be known about God, verse 19, is plain to them because God has shown it to them. So everything we need to know about God, God has revealed to us, that is, that He is God. He has revealed, verse 20, His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world. God has ordered and orchestrated creation to bear testimony, witness that He is the Creator, and He places that before every human being that's ever been born that's undeniable. This is God's Word, not me making this up. He says in verse 20, near the end, they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him. But they became futile in their thinking, and in their foolish, foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, claiming to be wise, who's been taught, <laughs> the more you know, the more you study, the more degrees you have behind your name, the longer you stay in college, the wiser you become. Not true, because wisdom doesn't come from education through secular teaching. Wisdom comes from where? The Word of God. Wisdom comes from the Word of They claim to be wise, but they have become Fools. They did not honor God. They did not give thanks to Him. They became futile in their thinking. Their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. And they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. And then, as you know, Paul spells out for us very clearly what that looks like in a society 
that is an open rebellion and total defiance of the authority of God. Turn to 2 Peter chapter 2. Peter addresses the same issue. 2 Peter chapter 2, where he's addressing the issue of sinful rebellion. Go to look at verse 1 just to set the context here. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, changing the nature and character of the Word of God, changing the nature and character of the gospel, doing anything that's necessary to get people to believe. Just believe. And verse 2, and many will follow their sensuality. These are the kind of teachers who appeal only to the emotions and call people to these exotic, ecstatic, emotionally engaging experience. They will follow their sensuality, and because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed, they will exploit you. They will exploit people in the church with false words. Now look at verse 4. There are people who will be seduced by this kind of teaching, led astray by this kind of a teaching, and they will see it and hear it and receive it as truth because they want to be in charge of their own lives. They want to be their own authority. They want to have it their own way. But listen to what Peter says. If God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. If he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, if he, by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. And he goes on and on and on. If God brought that kind of judgment, even on the angels, what about us? When we live in open defiance of the authority of God. So here it is, very simply, in the basic definition of sin, we are all sinners, we're born that way, and the demonstration of being sinners is what we do in defiance of God. Now, if we're going to live in defiance of God, if sin is living in defiance of God, rejecting the authority of God, we've got to have a standard. It would be totally unjust of God to say, sin is your transgressing my way, but I'm not going to tell you what my way is. So what is the standard for every human being in the world that God has established? That establishes the fact for us to see and to know that we're all sinners. He's put it in his law, right? 
That's why the law of God is so critical. Because when we see the law of God and understand the law of God, we see the standard. So go to Exodus chapter 20. Here is the Cliff Notes version of the law of God. The law of God in its, ex- in its essence in Exodus chapter 20. Sometimes when we're reading the law of God, I'm guilty of this, we, we skip verse 1, but first, verse 1 of Exodus 20 is, is the, it's the foundation for the law of God. And God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. God redeems his people. And he redeems his people as an act of his grace and mercy. He brings us to himself. He, he buys us through his blood or through the blood of the lamb as his own. We belong to him. And since we belong to him, we're commanded to live his way. And he lays it out. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. This is the essence in three statements of a right relationship with God. No other gods, no false worship, no saying I belong to God and then living in the world to demonstrate that you really don't. That's taking the name of the Lord in vain. It's focused, our relationship to God is focused in a day. What day is it? Verse 8, Exodus 20, remember the Sabbath day to keep it what? How do I know I have a right relationship with God? What is one of the ways I know how I treat the Sabbath day? Under the new covenant, the Lord's Day, Sunday. And then God turns to our relationship to one another. Honor, honor your father and your mother. I get aggravated with Nana at home. I remember this commandment. <laughs> I don't get aggravated with her, though. She's wonderful. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, you shall not covet your neighbor's house, and so forth and so on. We have a standard. And God has been gracious to give us the standard because He wants us to know that we can't meet it on our own. That's why Paul says the law is our guardian to bring us to Jesus. That's why Paul says no person can be right with God by the law, not a one of us. God wants us to see that if the law is the standard, we can't meet the standard. Well, why would God do that? Because one of the nature, one of the elements of the nature of sin in every human being is that we love to defy authority. We are in rebellion, open rebellion against God. And God is gracious and kind 
to give us the standard to keep reminding us that we can't meet the standard, that we can't have a relationship with God by the terms that we set for ourselves. Well, let's look at a few more terms here. There's a third term used in the Bible, in the Old Testament, for sin, used 230 times. It has to do with moral evil. Go to Genesis chapter 15. Genesis chapter 15, verse 6. Verse 16, I'm sorry. <clears throat> this is the one of the most beautiful pictures in the Old Testament of God declaring Abraham to be right with him through a covenant, through the covenant that God made with Abraham. Verse 16, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. Why doesn't, think about this, why doesn't God judge America now? Do we deserve it? Should he? Why hasn't he? Because the iniquity of the Americans is not yet complete. Now, let me tell you what you don't know, and I don't know. We don't know whether or not God, this is why you ought to pray for this. You ought to beg God for this. We do not know whether between now and the sin of Americans being complete, whether or not from now to then God might send a great awakening to America. We don't know that. Uh, some of us are prone to say, if, if you're a half glass half empty person, you're saying, it's too late. You're talking about God. You're talking about God. It's never too late with God. We don't know. So I'm not praying God judge us. We're already under his judgment. I'm praying God send. Send an outpouring of your Holy Spirit that will make Pentecost look like a kindergarten gathering on vacation Bible school commencement night. Do something supernatural and shake the very foundations. Moral evil. Whenever moral evil gets a hold of a culture, it never gets better. It gets worse until it gets so disastrous that either there is no hope or the only hope is the outpouring of God's Spirit. A fourth term is Shema. You're familiar with this one. It's the Hebrew word for hearing. Shema is used in connection with sin in this way. Sin is the refusal to hear the Word of God and to obey it. Sin is the refusal to hear the Word of God and obey obey it. God's raised up preachers and teachers in his church, equipped those preachers and teachers 
to bring people the Word of God, not the Word of man. I'm not talking here about a sermon. I'm talking about the kind of preaching that Dustin did this morning, the expositional kind of preaching, showing us in the text what the Bible says and helping us see how to apply it to our lives. That's preaching. God's given us that kind of preaching, not so that we sit back and say, well, that's just your idea. No, that's God's Word. We're called to hear it. And to do it. Why do you think James says, don't just hear the word, but what? Do the word. Go back to Genesis chapter 3. We were in Genesis chapter 3 recently in Sunday school. Satan came and tempted Eve and she doubted God's word. She refused to hear it. And to do it. Go to Exodus chapter 32, 9. I can identify with this one. I can identify with this one uh, lots of days. One of the terms for sin is that we're stiff-necked. Stiff-necked. Now, this doesn't mean you've got a crick in your neck. This means you have bowed up against God and His Word. You refuse to bow before God. Exodus 32, verse 9 Begin in verse 7, the Lord said to Moses, Go down for your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf, and they have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff Necked people. Now leave me alone, that my wrath may burn hot against them and I may consume them in order that I might make a great nation of you. And that's repeated over and over again in this section of Exodus. These are people who decided they did not want to worship the God of Israel. They wanted to worship God in their own way. And to worship God in their own way, they had to make their own God. A sixth term has to do with evil that comes when we depart from God's will. You can't walk away from God's word, God's way, and God's will and not expect bad things to happen. God is good that way because he sends us the evil to show us his goodness. Look at 1 Kings chapter 11. 1 Kings chapter 11 verses 6 through 8. So Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and did not wholly, W-H-O-L-L-Y, follow the Lord as David his father had done. Then Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the abomination of Moab, and for Molech, the abomination of the Ammonites, on the mountain east of Jerusalem, a place where God was worshipped. Solomon now is building these pagan shrines, so he did, and so he did for all of his foreign wives who made offerings and sacrifice to their God. Solomon saw evil come to him and to his kingdom because he failed to be faithful 
in being obedient to God. A seventh term that is used for evil in the Old Testament is has to do with wickedness, both in terms of our acting wickedly and doing wickedness. You can look this up, Proverbs 11.5. An eighth term has to do with rebellion. Rebellion against God externally is typically manifest first and foremost in a bitter and complaining spirit. What if we had spiritual discernment to see this? What if pastors and elders and deacons had spiritual discernment to see this? That where there is constant bitterness and constant complaining and constant questioning, What is that demonstrating? It's demonstrating this rebellion against God. Turn to Deuteronomy chapter 1. We see this all over the Bible. It's everywhere. But Deuteronomy chapter 1, verse 26 God had commanded his people. What they were to do, in verse 26 read, you would not go up but rebelled against the command of the Lord your God. Verse 27, and you, what were they doing in their tents? Murmured. It said, because the Lord hated us, he has brought us out of the land of Egypt to give us into the hand of the Amorites to destroy us. Why are we going? Where are we going up? Our brothers have made our hearts melt, saying, The people are greater and taller than we. The cities are great and fortified up to heaven. And besides, we have seen the sons of the Anakim, the giants there. They had a bitter spirit, a complaining spirit. They did not trust God. They were in rebellion against God. These were those called to be the people of God, but they were demonstrating that their hearts had turned away from God. There are at least seven other words that are used. I'm not going to go through all of them, aren't you glad? At least seven other words that are used in the Old Testament to help us understand what sin is and how sin operates. There are three things I want you to get from tonight. Number one, The Bible takes sin far more seriously than we do. The Bible takes sin far more seriously than we do. We've changed our whole vocabulary about sin. We don't even use that language anymore. Number two, the essence of sin is that we're all sinners. We're born that way. It's inescapable. We're born, turned in upon ourselves, wanting to fulfill our own desires, and we will keep living that way until God delivers us by His grace through the gospel. And thirdly, that we are sinners is seen in our speech and our actions and our deeds, and the Bible spells out for us so much of what that looks like. 
But at the end of the day, what it looks like is rebellion against God. You and I live in a culture where we don't want anybody in charge of us. Anybody. We don't want anybody to tell us what to do. One of the first acts of rebellion of children is, you're not going to tell me what to do. Who made you the boss over me? And yet, as believers, what we hate when we're sinners, we delight in as believers. We're not in charge of our lives. When we're in charge of our lives, have you found us out? We can make a mess of them. But when we yield our lives to Jesus as Lord, only he can make life what it was intended to be. He is the only one who can deliver sinners from sin, forgive sinners of our sin. Do you know the day you trusted Jesus as your Lord? Whenever that was. We talked about it a little bit tonight in First Family Ministry. I, I think it's wrong. I think it's very wrong. I think it's deadly wrong to say to people, you ought to know exactly when that happened. No, that's not true. You should know it happened. That, that God delivered you from your sin, and you trusted Jesus to save you. But as soon as that happens in your life, you are forever delivered from the punishment of sin. Forever. Past, present, future. That's wonderful. But you're also delivered from the power of sin. You have no excuse. You can't say, I can't help myself. Well, that is true. But who's a bigger helper than yourself? You've got God in your life. The Holy Spirit living inside of you. Jesus interceding for you. The only reason we say, I can't help myself, I stay in this sin because I can't help myself, is that you do not see your sin the way God sees your sin. And when you see your sin the way God sees your sin, if you truly love God, you'll hate your sin. And you'll do everything in your power to get that sin out of your life. Sin is real and sin is powerful. But God said it at the beginning to Cain, sin's like a wild animal at, your, at the door of your heart, and it wants you. It will either master you or you will master it. I'm convinced of this. As you grow as a believer, I don't think this happens to young believers. But as you grow as a believer, God will bring you. I don't know when this happens. I wish I could give you a time. But you will come to a place where you can't live in love with Jesus and live in your sin at the same time. To the point that you couldn't go in that sanctuary as a believer in sin and truly worship God. It would drive you completely insane. And when that happens to you, you should praise God because he's growing you and maturing you and developing you 
so that you can see how wonderful he is and how sinful you are. And between those two things is the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ, who has washed away forever the ugliness and horribleness of your sin. God, I thank you that one of the things you delight to do is to forgive sinners and to wash away sin. And I pray for any, any of my brothers and sisters in this room tonight who are harboring sinful attitudes, sinful thoughts, sinful speech, sinful actions. I pray that you would so convict them even tonight, that they could not sleep until they are on their face before you, knees before you, standing in your presence, however they choose to do it, and recognizing that their sin is against you and only against you, that you will call us to confession and bring us to repentance. And remind us that you don't want us groveling in our sins. You call us to confess. And your immediate response is the washing away of that sin. You're just. And you're faithful to forgive us our sins. You teach us. And to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Father, we will encounter sinners during this week, and we can either look at them and their sin and say, I thank you, Lord, that I am not like other folk. Or we could look at them and their sin and say, I'm just like them. Maybe even worse except for your grace. Thank you again for this day and all your goodness to us. We love you. We love you, Lord Jesus. Not nearly enough, but we love you. And we thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.